0: A kidnapping gone very wrong. It's a story you probably never heard of, and yet it happened. A U.S. diplomat, his wife, and the People's Liberation Army of Mexico. Brendan I. Kerner, author and writer for The Atlantic, joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for being here with us. We have a true crime historical account for today's episode, one that takes us back in time several decades. But before we get to that, we need to thank our sponsor, Noda, Notice powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Nota, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's notice spelled N O T A. Terms and conditions may apply. So let's say hello to our guest, Brendan I. Kerner. He's an author and writer for The Atlantic. He's also a contributing editor to Wired. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Lawrence. Absolutely, you know I um I really enjoyed your piece. So my my producer uh, Molly McDonough and I were researching topics, and I wanted to do something in the true crime genre, and I came across your piece in the Atlantic. I really enjoyed it. It was. Uh, really well written. It's titled A Kidnapping Gone Very Wrong. And, uh, you know, I thought you did a masterful job at pulling in different timelines and uh, you didn't give away too much of the plot. Everything sort of crystallized at the right time. So I want to give you compliments on your writing style. I think it was uh, masterfully done and uh, it was a beautiful piece too. There There's these wonderful illustrations by Leonardo Santa Maria and they really took me back in time. You know, this happened decades ago and the pictures, the faces, you know, the vehicles featured in there. Really kind of took me back to a different place. And so I want to talk about the story and uh, just kind of a little setup here. And so, this story that you wrote about is true. It's a true story. It involves a kidnapped diplomat. Uh, there's some involvement with President Nixon, Henry Kissinger. There's a cameo appearance with John McCain. And the Hanoi Hilton plays a bit of a role here. There's a hijacking, there's a border crossing, there's a ransom. So, it's got a lot of everything. So, Before we get to the first question, I want to take the audience back in time here, Brendan. You know, the year is 1974. And according to the census, there are 4 billion people on the planet. President Nixon, he's in the White House, and he's currently occupied uh, with this Watergate scandal. The Vietnam War, it's winding down, and the golden age of skyjacking is coming to an end, while a new era in high-profile kidnapping seems to be on the rise. The hippie generation is giving way to disco. The F-16 fighter jet makes its first flight while the Brady Bunch airs their last episode. America's turning a page, and that's where we pick up your story in the March of 1974. So your, your story takes place. There's a uh, junior diplomat at the American consulate serving his country in Mexico, serving the United States. He's 31 at the time. He's got this reputation, his physical appearance, an unkempt version of Warren Beatty with uh, this brown bushy hair. And his wife, Andra Patterson, his name is John Patterson. She, Her name is Andra Patterson. She joins him down there on his assignment. And she's as much as part of the story as he is. He goes missing and she looks for him. So i Brendan, let me turn it over to you now. I think it's really important to talk about how John and Andra met. You know, they, they got together as young adults. They toured Europe. They broke up. They got back together. So tell us their story.
1: Yeah, so I was, John and Andra actually met during their junior year abroad in college in the early 1960s. They were both studying in France, and they met there. And after their studies were done, they actually went on a scooter trip across Europe. And it was this incredibly romantic adventure for both of them, and they, they really fell in love. They tried to continue the relationship upon their return to the States, but it really didn't work long distance in college, and they, they broke up. And they were apart for years and actually Andre got married and then divorced and moved back to her native New York and she wondered what happened to John and she found out he actually was studying for his MBA at Columbia and found a number for him and and called him and they arranged to meet. It was like a day had never passed. They were right back in love. They decided to move uh, back in together. Uh, at this time, Andre had a very young daughter, and John really became a, a father uh, to the young girl, a girl named Julia, and. After John uh, graduated from Columbia, he moved down to Washington, D.C. and took a job uh, with the ad hoc commission involved in implementing President Nixon's price controls. Um, But it really wasn't what he wanted to do with his life. They wanted, both of them, the kind of adventure they'd had on that scooter trip across Europe in the early 60s. And so John had this idea that he would join the Foreign Service, and he got accepted into the training program, learned Spanish for almost a year, and... When he graduated uh, towards the end of 1973, he received his first posting, and that was to a consulate in Hermosillo, Mexico, Hermosillo being the
0: capital of Sonora State. And so at this time, it's 1974, there was a rash of kidnappings that were going on, and uh, the United States had a a hardline policy here regarding negotiations with terrorists. So build that out a little bit. What was going on in 1974, and why was the United States so against negotiating with terrorist groups?
1: Yeah, so there actually been a rash of kidnapping, specifically of American diplomats, for the past uh, few years. Prior to this, there had been one in Haiti. There had been uh, one in Mexico in Guadalajara, and there had been a very infamous one in Sudan, where an organization uh, of Palestinian terrorists had uh, broken into the Saudi Arabian embassy where a party was going on and taken hostage uh, both the American ambassador and his right hand man. And the U.S. flew out uh, a State Department official to negotiate for the release. And while that negotiator was in the air, President Nixon had a press conference and he was asked about this. And kind of off the cuff, he said that, you know, well, being a diplomat's a dangerous job and we're not going to negotiate with terrorists. So he kind of undercut his negotiator before it even set foot in Khartoum. And so the, um, the diplomat's captors killed them. And from that point forward, American policy about negotiations with kidnappers kind of changed to fit what President Nixon had said kind of extemporaneously. And from that point forward, the idea was that we will not negotiate directly with kidnappers. We will not provide any sort of ransom. The real only allocation made in these circumstances would be that, you know, if the family of the victim wanted to gather ransom and pay for it privately, then the U.S. government wouldn't really stand in their way, at at least not overtly. Um, But the government itself would would not talk to uh, kidnappers.
0: Well, let's talk about what happened on that fateful morning. So this is March 22nd, 1974. John Patterson disappears. He fails to show up at an appointment. So tell us about the eyewitness accounts of the events that occurred that day.
1: Yeah. So John Patterson, you know, being a very junior diplomat, this being his first posting, had kind of a a low on the totem pole sort of job. Um, He was in charge of agricultural affairs, essentially, and promoting agricultural trade between the U.S. and Mexico. And so that morning, he was actually supposed to drive out and meet with some Sonoran cattle ranchers who were interested in learning about new scientific techniques to improve the yield of beef uh, on their cows and he was going to head out there, uh, meet these men, bring them a list of film strips they could order through the consulate to learn about these techniques. John Patterson, he took the keys to a a consular vehicle, an international harvester truck, and went downstairs, and an employee of the consulate saw him outside the truck talking to another man, a, a shorter man wearing a suit and sunglasses. And both men got in the truck and drove off, and then... Shortly afterwards, the clerk at the motel where the Pattersons had been living, um, they were still in the process of looking for a house of their own, he saw this truck drive by the the motel. He recognized John Patterson as the driver, did not recognize the passenger. John Patterson never showed up for that meeting with the ranchers, and nor did he return to the consulate that day. The the consulate closed every day for lunch. When it reopened uh, around 2 or 2.30, they found an envelope that had been slipped beneath the door, and it was addressed to the consul general, a man named Elmore Yelton. And they opened it up, and inside was a note written in John Patterson's handwriting, but that clearly had been dictated to him, in which he said that, I've been held hostage now, I've been kidnapped by the People's Liberation Army of Mexico, and they want $500,000 in ransom, To be delivered by my wife, Uh, here are the instructions. She's to deliver one half of the ransom in Nogales, which is a town right across the Arizona border, uh, in about 48 hours at a specific hotel. And then the wife is to fly to Mexico City, check into the Holiday Inn, and await further instructions about the remaining quarter million dollars. And the other stipulation, which struck some people as a little strange, was... John Patterson had been compelled to write, under no circumstances is any public word of my kidnapping to be released. And if it is released or any harm comes to members of our army, then we will assassinate other members of the U.S. diplomatic corps and their families. And this was strange because typically terrorists, when they commit kidnappings, they want maximum publicity. Uh, This is really the way that terrorist groups exert their influence and, and amplify their power. They could be small, but if they get a lot of media coverage for acts of political violence they carry out, they seem much more powerful. So it was very odd that this People's Liberation Army of Mexico did not want any publicity.
0: All right. So now in terms of the next steps, as we already talked about, you know, the United States is not going to pay a ransom to get their diplomat back. But Andra is free to raise funds and uh, try to spring John out by paying these uh, these demands. And so the U.S. government, though, you know, they're not totally tied up. You know, they can help her in direct and indirect ways. But as you said, they want to keep it quiet. So how did that dance work? Now, what were Andra's next steps? How did the federal government help her out?
1: Yeah, so the Patterson family was kind of left to its own devices to try to raise money, and um, they were able to raise half the ransom to start pretty quickly, uh, thanks to the largesse of a family friend of the Patterson's. Um, But like you said, the U.S. government had to be very careful about not being seen as exerting too much influence in this process. What they did offer was— Two State Department officials flew up from Mexico City and basically volunteered to be Andra's protectors, her bodyguards. As she traveled into Mexico from Arizona, she had to go to Arizona to retrieve the money. These two men, a man named Vic Dykus and Keith Gwynn, volunteered to go with her across the border with this incredibly large sum of money, uh, knowing how dangerous that might be for her.
0: Now, uh, the Vic, Vic, is it Victor Dykus? Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, Dykus, yes. Dykus, uh, Victor Dykus. Now, he was worried about uh, the FBI being potentially involved in this. Why was that?
1: For starters, you know, Vic Dykus, his priority, I think, in all situations like this is the safety of, of the hostage, uh, the safety of the kidnapped victim. And he worried that the FBI, which is very interested in apprehending the kidnappers and doing surveillance and getting intimately involved uh, with this. If they were spotted or if they made an arrest uh, before John Patterson was recovered, that it might lead to, to, to John's execution.
0: Now, the reason Vic is concerned here is that, uh, you know, he's the supervisor for all the American consulates, and so obviously he wants his people back. Now, unbeknownst to him, unbeknownst to Andra, the FBI is working under a different assumption here. Now, they've got a different theory as to what's going on. Uh, Tell us what that theory is and what led them to believe what they were believing.
1: Yeah, so the FBI had some suspicions that um, this might be a hoax and that the Pattersons might have orchestrated this themselves. And they they did some background investigation of the Pattersons, and and they were really worried about what they saw as overly progressive or liberal politics, particularly on the part of Andra, who'd— Participated in some anti-war demonstrations uh, in college, Um, and so they, being a, a very conservative institution, this is shortly after J. Edgar Hoover's death, were operating under the theory that the likeliest explanation was that this was a hoax perpetrated by the Pattersons.
0: Now, the first attempt here to pay this ransom fails. They, they don't ultimately end up connecting with the kidnappers. And after this, there's a press conference that uh, puts John Patterson's life in danger. So tell us about that. Walk us through what happened there and uh, how Andra and the diplomats cleaned the mess up.
1: Yeah, well, William Saxby, the eternal general, uh, let slip at a press conference. There had been a kidnapping in Mexico, and that's why he had to cancel an upcoming trip to the country. He was supposed to discuss drug interdiction policy in Mexico, and he canceled that trip due to the Patterson kidnapping. He accidentally lets this slip to the media. Uh, Very quickly, the press is all over it, and Andra and her State Department handlers feel compelled to have her come out and make a statement publicly trying to communicate with the kidnappers, saying that this was an accident. This is not my fault. Please don't harm my husband.
0: Now, let's fast forward to April 10th. There's a second attempt at a ransom drop. So tell us how that got started and what happened.
1: Yeah, there had been a phone call to the consulate from someone offering fresh instructions that uh, the payment should now be made in a place in Baja, California, at a different hotel. And Andre actually goes out there with the money, this time all by herself, uh, take a great personal risk. Um, and she, she waits there for days. Um, and unfortunately, no one shows to collect the ransom.
0: Now. Almost a month later, May 6th, there's one last attempt. There's a contact, there's a letter that's sent to the Consul General and uh, it's trying to set up this third attempt at a ransom drop. So let's pick the story up there. What happens? Why does that drop fail?
1: Uh, it's really due to the, the slowness of the postal service. The the letter, when it arrives in Hermosillo, proposes another ransom drop, but it had taken several days to get, it was postmarked in San Diego, and it had taken several days to get to Hermosillo, and it proposed a date, three days in the past, for the ransom drop to occur, so um, that chance was already gone.
0: All right, now, so someone else enters the storyline, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Bobby Joe Izikisi. Kasi. Kasi. So Bobby Joe Kasi joins the uh, the storyline here, and he's an interesting character because he's a former uh, civilian POW that was actually in the Hanoi Hilton with with John McCain. He's a veteran, and he's got an unusual background. Now, he becomes imprisoned at the Hanoi Hilton as a civilian, so he wasn't in active service at the time. So tell us about his, uh, his I guess, his war record background and how he found himself into uh, Vietnam and imprisoned by the uh, North Vietnamese Army.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty sprawling story, and uh, I'll give you the quick version is that Bobby Jokasi was a Korean War veteran who had gone AWOL in the early 1960s after being a career soldier uh, and a sergeant. Got in a bit of trouble with the federal government, did some time, got out. Uh, Next materialized actually in Thailand, where he hijacked a plane. Uh, He basically, he'd rented a plane under false pretenses, forced the pilots at gunpoint to take him to North Vietnam, where he just hopped out on a beach for unclear reasons and of course was immediately apprehended by the North Vietnamese army and disappeared. Uh, No one knew what it became of him. It was widely assumed that he'd been killed. And then actually in March 1973 when you have you know a uh, plane loads of POWs from the Hawaiii Hilton being returned to the US as part of the Treaty of Paris that ended American involvement in the Vietnam War, Bobby Cassie is on one of the planes that is actually also bringing back John McCain. Um, it's a surprise to many people you know the Thai government wants to extradite him and have him face face charges for hijacking and he, he's clearly not a hero in the traditional sense but Really, the American government treats him like a hero, treats him as on par with the, with the soldiers uh, that have been in prison. He's invited to a, a big White House shindig and honored there, and he starts his life anew in California. And actually spends a lot of his time marching in parades and showing at a, up as a, at events as a POW, taking out lots of lines of credit based on his fame. But that's not really the life for him. He's an adventurer, and uh, he decides to get up so some more mischief
0: now, that that brings us up to January 1974. So Bobby Joe gets some big ideas about making money in Mexico, and he decides to enlist a co-worker to give him a hand with that. So tell us about his plans and how he goes uh, south into Mexico.
1: Yeah, it's a strange one. So in January 74, he does head into Mexico with a 19-year-old man who works with him at a cabinet shop. And they have this plan that they're going to kidnap someone from the U.S. consulate and hold, the, hold him for ransom. And Bobby Joe, he's been in Hermosillo quite a bit. His father was a retiree living near there. And so he knows the place pretty well. He actually had met people at the consulate previously masquerading as a cattle rancher. And, and he goes in and, and actually asks for John Patterson by name. He'd heard that the consulate was getting a new agricultural officer, but John Patterson wasn't there yet. And so he and his accomplice uh, go home empty-handed, and his accomplice says he wants nothing else to do with this plot. And so Bobby Joe, as of January 1974, is still looking for something to do with his life.
0: Now, that's where we're going to leave the story, but there's much more that occurs. Now, ultimately, the law does catch up uh, with Bobby Joe, and he's brought up on some charges. So tell us briefly about that. We'll close it out. We'll leave a little cliffhanger here for the listeners.
1: Yeah, sure. So actually, Bobby Joe Cassie is charged in federal court uh, with kidnapping, but the case kind of falls apart. You know, even though he has his accomplice from the January attempt, who's willing to testify against him and and some other interesting physical evidence, the federal government gets nervous about its prospects at trial. And so it, it cuts a deal. And ultimately, Bobby Joe Casey pleads guilty to, to one count of conspiracy to kidnap, really based on that, that letter that we talked about that, that arrived late at the consulate in Hermesillo that could be traced back to San Diego. He, he admits to writing that letter, but, but really nothing else. He is sentenced to, to 20 years in prison on that conspiracy charge, but uh, he doesn't serve all those years in prison.
0: Yeah. And his adventures are not over. This story goes on. And so also featured in the pieces, what happens to Bobby Joe? What happens to John Patterson? But the, I thought really fascinating is that all these decades later, you catch up with Andra Patterson and talk about what she went through during all these events. But all of this, Brendan, is in your piece. And it's also contained within an audio link that you can listen to this article uh, for yourself. So highly recommend, you know, Brendan did a really good job putting this together and I love the illustrations, but the audio is wonderful. I'm an audio guy and you can sit back on your lunch break and figure out what happened here. So Brandon, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation today.
1: Oh, thanks a million, Lawrence. I enjoyed it
0: as well. You no, know, and if our listeners are interested, where can they find more of your work? Because you're also an author. You write on a bunch of uh, topics, including hijackings. Yeah, so uh, author of two books, Um, the most recent
1: is called The Skies Belong to Us, which is about the golden age of hijacking in America, and specifically one couple that hijacked a plane from California to to Africa in the 70s, Uh, wrote another book called Now the Hell Will Start. That is about an American GI who ended up going native with a a hill tribe in the Indo-Burmese wilderness during World War II. And uh, I read a lot for Wired magazine, have a a lot of uh, pieces in there um, about true crime and other topics.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing your time. I really appreciate you being here. Of
1: course. My pleasure, Lawrence.
0: And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's Nota, spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never, never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.